In the name of God, who creates, redeems, and sanctifies. Amen. Please sit. This morning, we are doing a few things a little differently than normal to mark the nation's celebration of Juneteenth. I'll tell you later, if you haven't seen yet, about a trip we're going to take to the cemetery after worship today that I hope you will join us for. Juneteenth is the oldest national celebrated commemoration of the ending of slavery in the United States. And if you know the story, you know that there is a little bit of a story to it because we all were taught, at least I was, that Abraham Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation freed all the slaves. And of course, we know now that that's not true. In fact, it was a whole two years later that Union soldiers in Galveston, Texas, enforced this on this day in, 1960, in 1865. So even though it had been two years since Abraham Lincoln spoke those famous words, two whole years, people were still held in bondage. We know, and I think we're becoming always more aware as grown-ups, as slightly better students of history now than perhaps we were 20 or 30 years ago, that the process of moving towards freedom in the United States was a slow one. And many of you know, because you were actually there, that the process of moving toward anything that began to even look remotely like equality has also been a, a long process. Even though there was 100 years between 1860s and 1960s, the process was slow and still is. We still haven't really achieved a, a system that is equal and fair. So this morning, as we think about this holiday and our history, the lectionary gave us a couple of really interesting texts. And a, a reminder here that I don't pick the texts on Sunday morning. <laughs> we follow a three-year lectionary, as many of the other churches around the world, our brothers and sisters all across the world, listen to the same lessons, not everyone, but a lot of the Church Universal listens to the same lessons every week. So I did not pick these lessons this morning. And yet they have an awful lot to say to us, I think, about this moment in history and about the challenge that it is to believe in the truth, to be willing to speak the truth, and to believe that our words of faith can, in fact, set people free. And so I want to begin with Paul's letter to the Galatians, which is sort of fascinating in its own right. We actually did a Bible study here on it a couple of years ago before the pandemic, and if you were in that, I apologize, because you're going to hear some of my normal ranting about Galatians. This is one of the letters that we know that Paul wrote. We're very, very sure that Paul actually wrote this letter. Um, and there's some that we question and some that we're pretty sure that Paul didn't write. But Galatians, it's definitely him. And it's set in the context of him as pastor writing to a community who he loves, I, I think, sort of, um, but he's really sort of exasperated with them because they just can't get it right. In fact, um, my favorite part of it is there's a, a stretch in the middle where he says, you foolish Galatians, and he's sort of yelling at them, almost like a parent who's exasperated with their children. Pastors sometimes feel the same way. And so he, he writes to them, and he is so frustrated because he loves them. And he names in just the short snippet of the text that you heard that um, that they've been baptized and that they've put on Christ, and so they should be different. And yet, they're still squabbling between themselves about all of these things that don't 
really matter. And some of it is based on difference and on status and on power. Remember, all of a sudden in the early church, as these little house churches started to pop up, the idea was that all different people who believed in Jesus were suddenly worshiping together. And in the stratified ancient world, that didn't happen. You didn't have wealthy people and poor people. You didn't have sick people and healthy people. You didn't have these sort of differences and opposites kind of rubbing up against each other in the ancient world. Everything was very separate. So it was a struggle for these people to all of a sudden to figure out how to be themselves, actually how to be better than themselves, frankly, in the midst of this situation. And all through Paul's letters, we hear this rub where, you know, some of the wealthy don't want to eat with the poor, or they want to eat the really good food that they brought, but not the food that the poor people brought. They don't really want to share. So it's that kind of struggle between status and power, an adjustment to the idea that in Christ, we are unified. And what Paul's doing here is really very clear in some ways. But I think for us, it's easy to sort of look at this passage on a a superficial level and say, okay, I get it, right? We're all the same. The things that make us different, they fall away, and Jesus makes us all the same. And while that's sort of true, it's also a reduction, I think, of what Paul is actually doing. Because we have to remember that Paul, before he believes in Jesus, before he has his confirmation, his name is Saul. And he is a zealous Jewish religious elite. He knows scripture and he knows the law better than anyone. So he would have known deep in his bones that in the original oldest parts of scripture that were originally vocally passed down, orally passed down for years and years, that we are told that we are made in the image of God. And I don't think that Paul necessarily is trying to be reductionist about this. I don't think he's trying to say that all of our difference falls away. Instead, I think we have to sort of think of ourselves a little bit like a mosaic. Each one of us carries a piece of that image. And when you add it all up, you sort of have some sense of who God is and what God looks like and how much God can love. All of us with our different colors of hair and different colors of skin, different gifts and abilities, our different voices and different talents, the various pieces that make up our identity, somewhere buried in there, in all of that uniqueness that makes us who we are, that's given to us by God, is the profile, the image, the thumbnail of God. Paul is not trying to erase this in this passage to the Galatians. What he's trying to do, and I think to call us to, is something a little bit different. He's trying to call us to the fact that as Christians, there's something else that sort of supersedes that. And that is that we are meant to become like Jesus, that we are meant to find unity in our identity as Christians more compelling than the differences of our diversity. He's pointing to the fact that when we believe we are marked by the Spirit and claimed as Christ's own in baptism, there's something else that happens to us. We begin a journey. We are transformed. We are a new creation. And in terms of how we treat each other or categorize each other, our faith, our connectedness, transcends, not in a erasure, not in a bad way, but transcends any of the other differences or power differentials we experience. 
At our baptism, we become a part of the body of Christ. And if we live by faith, and the point is that we are a little bit more and more transformed each day, hopefully giving ourselves over a little bit more. So we're changed more and more into the mind of Christ. And in Scripture, and often in our prayers and worship, the language that we use is more and more into the stature of Christ. So he's saying, rather, that if you believe, if you are part of this new covenant, then these things that are about status and power don't matter as much because we are all being transformed into Christ. We are all giving ourselves over little by little to be changed into the same thing, equal inheritors of the promise of God. What that means for us practically, if you're following along, is that what we're trying to do is be more like the one who loves and gives and lays down his life and tells the truth and challenges the system and eventually gets himself in so much trouble that he's killed. And God says, but that's not the end of the story. That's not easy work. Just ask Elijah. Our text from the Hebrew scripture this morning is a reminder of how difficult it is to be the prophet. How difficult it is to try to be like the one who loves. To be the one who speaks the truth. The world, even God's people, very rarely wants to hear the truth. In fact, I'd venture to say that God's good news that phrase that we use all the time, is not always good news for everyone. Just like that news on this day in 1865 didn't feel like good news to the people who wanted to continue to enslave other people, very often the truth of our faith doesn't sound like good news to the people who have power and privilege and wealth. In fact, I said in the E! News on Thursday, if you don't believe me, just go look at the Magnificat. It should make you a little uncomfortable. It should make us all a little bit uncomfortable about what God is really up to in the world. Our faith is always the faith of those who are oppressed, the faith of the underdog, the faith of the one who is cast out and left aside. It's the faith that supports and gives life to the people on the margins where God is present. Ours is a faith that disrupts the status quo and calls on all of us to change. To hear the words of Paul to the wealthy and powerful, get over yourselves. Eat with those people that you have tried to oppress. You are no better than they are. It's hard to be Elijah, and it's hard to be one of the prophets. There's something, I think, intrinsic in human nature that we, we sometimes don't want to hear the truth. We don't want to hear the good news. We don't want to be changed. And I think the first interaction in the gospel this morning is a perfect example of that. We have this man who appears to Jesus, and Jesus has tried to call the demon out, and the man, according to the text, says, Jesus, what do you have to do with me? Please don't torment me which I read to say, Jesus, leave me alone. I'm fine. <laughs> I mean, I'm totally not fine. Nothing is okay in this situation, right? He's driven out into the wilds. He lives in the tombs. He can't keep his clothes on. He has to be bound with shackles and guards so he doesn't hurt himself or someone else. Nothing in this scenario is fine. 
But it is easier for him to continue to be that guy than go through the pain of being healed and cleansed by Jesus. How true is that for us sometimes when we don't want to be changed, when we don't want to be challenged, when we don't want to hear the good news that rubs against us and calls us to be different. The man is afraid of what is to come. And so I wonder on this day, when we remember the last of the American slaves being freed, I wonder, how much longer will it take for us, with God's help, to be freed of the sin of racism, the demon of racism? I think often when we come to one of these gospel texts about demons, in our moment in time, we sort of don't know what to do with it. It feels too far out of our experience. For a lot of us, not all of us. Some people have really different feelings about these texts, and there's a place for that too. But I think for a lot of us, we come to these texts and we don't know what to do with it. And so I think in this case, probably the most helpful way to think about it is that these demons prevented him from being in community. Right? He couldn't live in a house. He had to live in the tombs. He couldn't follow any of the law, so no one would have been able to be with him, to eat with him, to touch him. He would have been entirely alone, abandoned by friends, abandoned by family. This thing within him that he could not control, and yet still surprisingly was not willing to yield at the beginning, prevented him from living a full, wholesome life with the people that he should have loved and received love from. And so I think it can be helpful when we talk about demons to think about them as the things that keep us from community, that keep us from living these good, healthy, wholesome, full lives, that keep us from right relationship with ourselves, with God, and with each other. And so I wonder, how long will it take, with God's help, for us to be free of the demon of racism? How exasperated with us would Paul be for continuing to see the differences between us instead of the unity that is created by our baptism? How exasperated would Paul be with the fact that we continue to live in a system that perpetuates itself and disadvantages people who are black and brown and divides all of us in a whole host of other ways too? What are the demons in our own life individually and in our collective life that we need to be free of. Surely there are more. I can't help but think one of them is our love of guns in this country, our inability to put in place common sense gun control that keeps people safe. What truth are you being called to hear and to speak into the world, into your own spaces, into your own relationships that will make people uncomfortable, maybe even you? What part of what I've said this morning makes you uncomfortable? What truth are we being called to share with the world that will make it better, that will be part of God's good news? And are we willing to take that risk, to speak the truth, to see ourselves be changed, and to understand that our own individual freedom is tied 
to the collective freedom of all of God's people. I think what Paul is really after this morning is that sense that above all of the difference, we are intended to be one in Christ. Who do you struggle with? Who would it be hard for you to unite with? And what would it take this week for you to begin to dismantle that? Amen.